Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable, high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by Sherea Lane, Senior Advisor for Community Connectivity at the Internet Society and Advisory Committee Member of the Indigenous Connectivity Institute. She joins the show to discuss the state of the digital divide for Indigenous communities across North America, how the situation has evolved over the last few years, and policy recommendations and takeaways from this year's recently held Indigenous Connectivity Summit. All right, Sharia, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So before we dive into um, some specifics, tell me a bit about uh, your role at the Internet Society. Yeah, so I am uh, the Senior Advisor for Indigenous Community Connectivity at the Internet Society. Uh, I've been working on issues of tribal broadband for uh, just over the last three and a half years. Uh, I myself am a member of the Lummi Nation, which is located in Northwest Washington State. I have spent most of my life on the reservation. And so the issues of uh, indigenous connectivity are very uh, personal for me and just something that um, I've had the opportunity to work on and, and hope to continue working on well into the future. Awesome. Well, then you're the perfect person to talk to about all of this stuff, and I'm really happy to have you here. Um, So you all at the Internet Society recently held an Indigenous Connectivity Summit. We're going to talk a little bit more about what uh, went on there and and what the goal of that summit is. But um, since, as you say, uh, you've spent the past few years and much of your life immersed in, in these issues, can you talk a little bit about the state of connectivity and the digital divide for Indigenous communities in North America? Yeah, so I think as with most any issue when you're when you're talking about uh, indigenous communities, it's going to have a wide variation of experiences. Uh, I had the opportunity while I was still in grad school, actually, to sit down and talk with uh, former Washington State Senator John McCoy, who is a Tulalip tribal member in Washington State, who was working on the tribes. Uh, internet service provider ISP back in the 90s. And that tribe has had a very strong and successful sort of um, internet provider and connectivity since way back then. Uh, And there are also tribes who, when the pandemic hit, they had basically no connectivity and had to deploy sort of emergency solutions. And so I think that's one of the key things to note first is that you're going to see such a range of experiences uh, for tribes when it comes to connectivity. Some are uh, at the point of really sort of updating and upgrading their systems, and some are just getting started. Uh, mm-hmm. The bulk of my work has been with the tribes who are just getting started and who are uh, at the earliest stages of figuring out how to get their communities connected. Okay, really interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the the summit, the Indigenous Connectivity Summit. Um, what are some of the, well, first some background on, on what the summit is and tell me a bit about the groups involved and what the summit is overall looking to accomplish. Yeah, so the Internet Society was the uh, originator or creator of the Indigenous Connectivity Summit. It's been happening since 2017. Uh, this was actually the Internet Society's last year as the sort of uh, 
owner of that project and program, uh, the goal for the summit was to always sort of turn it over to Indigenous leadership uh, and to make it an Indigenous-led program and project. And so that's where the summit is at today is in that transition. So it's leaving the Internet Society after this year, going over to Connect Humanity, which is a fairly new program that's uh, looking at funding in tribal broadband. And from there, we'll go over to the Indigenous Connectivity Institute, which will be an all Indigenous uh, led and run sort of think tank is how I see it uh, for, uh, for tribal broadband. And so that's where the summit is at. And that has always been the goal. Uh, so it's, it's in transition right now. That's Uh, pretty exciting. That's cool. Yeah. And that, that I think is an underlying point of, of everything when we're talking about indigenous connectivity is the understanding that from sort of this point forward, we're always looking at it from a lens of indigenous ownership and leadership. Um, Mm -hmm. So ownership, when it comes to things like infrastructure, is not always the case. It's not always possible, but that's something that we sort of look at as like a general rule uh, for tribal communities moving forward to have ownership and leadership of not only these conversations, but the projects that will be created from here on out. And so the summit uh, this year, as it has in previous years, included workshops, presentations, panels, lightning talks, and um, on a number of issues that Indigenous communities face. Uh, a few key topics this year included broadband mapping, uh, spectrum sovereignty, which is a, a very important and I would say quickly emerging uh, area of focus, building off-grid networks, digital equity, and capacity building. Um, and a key activity uh, for this year's summit was the creation of a set of policy recommendations uh, developed jointly by participants. This is something that happens every year. The summit always comes out with policy recommendations that are then brought to uh, various government agencies in the U.S. and Canada. But this year, there were a couple of sort of newer types of recommendations, which was really, really cool to see. Uh, Those will be released very soon. Uh, One sort of sneak peek into that was... um, decolonizing uh, policy uh, and what was it? Decolonizing policy engagement, I think it was. So it just gives you an idea of the ways that people are sort of starting to look at and understand this work. And so in terms of what that looks like, is that, um, can you give me a little bit more about what decolonizing policy would look like? Would it involve, you know, certainly having indigenous voices involved in the policy making, but, but more than that? Yeah, I mean, it comes from the understanding that the digital inequity that we're facing today is a product of colonization. Mm-hmm. And so the approaches moving forward are going to have to include sort of a decolonized lens and decolonized practices. And uh, that's just what it comes down to. 
Awesome. Well, I'm excited to read those uh, more thoroughly when you all release them. Um, but sort of along those same lines, um, you mentioned earlier that, of course, the challenges differ across different indigenous communities. And we're, we'll talk in a little while about some of the differences between the U.S. and Canada in policymaking. But um, you mentioned you're, talk you're working with a lot of communities that are just getting started on their digital journeys or having you know deeper connectivity issues. So um, I wonder if you can highlight maybe just a couple of challenges that stick out to you um, that are facing indigenous communities when it comes to closing the digital divide that policymakers, decision makers may not be uh, thinking about or incorporating into their solutions. Yeah, so I think that the most important area to start is, is just an understanding of the historical exclusionary practices of indigenous communities up until this point. I mean, when I talk to people about the fact that there have been communities that have no internet access, the sort of mental like jump to even be able to understand what that would actually look like in 2022 uh, takes time for people to even, you know, I'll say it's as simple as imagine if you had no internet access today, like how would your life be impacted? Yeah, that's wouldn't be able to do anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's how some communities have been living up until this point. Uh, and that is not sort of a mistake. It didn't come out of thin air. That's just a very direct result of the historical um, practices that have excluded um, Indigenous communities in both the U.S. and Canada. But also, uh, when we get into the sort of... Uh, structure of broadband and connectivity. Uh, some of the things, I mean, one of the most obvious things too is uh, that up until this point, the internet has been sort of seen as like a luxury, almost mm -hmm. a for-profit uh, uh, business that if it's not profitable to connect a community, then they won't be connected because it's just something that if you're fortunate to have it, um, if you're fortunate enough to be in a location to have it, then you will. Uh, so things like President uh, Biden starting to term the Internet as a utility are really sort of revolutionary things that have just happened within the last year or so of that shift in understanding about how important this is and how we're going to have to sort of tackle things differently. Um, another thing, especially for indigenous communities, is things like geography. I know that uh, the Internet Society in the past worked with uh, the Havasupai tribe in Arizona, uh, which is the most geographically isolated tribe in the lower 48. I think it's, you can only get there by helicopter, boat, or hike, uh, and it's many, many miles to get there. Uh, so they were able to uh, build a community network there and sort of create this uh, self-sustaining uh, infrastructure for their community that just likely wouldn't have been possible any other way. Uh, another issue is affordability. Uh, so <clears throat> whether you're talking about things like Starlink and low earth orbiting satellites that can run, you know, upwards of hundreds of dollars a month, or just the fact that if you're connecting a community that is sort of uh, in a more isolated area, that it's going to cost unaffordable amounts. Um, so that's another uh, issue area. And, uh, also, I would, I believe just that cultural incompetency in general. So 
there are sort of these cultural factors that even for communities that could have been connected at this point, the sort of lack of relationship, the lack of intentionality um, on the part of our local governments to be, be very explicit about ensuring that indigenous communities are connected, uh, different governmental structures, all these things sort of just almost like the human nature behind it all has played a big role as well up until this point. Gotcha. Do you feel like any of that's, I mean, you mentioned President Biden uh, calling internet access a utility. Do you feel like any, beyond that, have has that conversation improved at all, you know, in your time working on this over the last few years? It definitely has, okay. uh, especially around the governmental piece. I know with the establishment of the Tribal Connectivity Program at NTIA in the U.S., uh, they specifically brought in uh, Indigenous leaders from around the country who have been doing this work for many years. Uh, I mean, people I know personally who have been brought into the White House and brought into the federal government uh, who are able to bring that lens, that understanding, and that voice to these tables has really changed things immensely. I know I got to have a conversation with uh, one of the heads of the BEAD program, which is responsible for the largest amounts of funding, not just to tribal communities, but, but um, all communities in the U.S. And I think because of the work that's been done and the leadership that's there, they have now sort of taken a different approach as well with how state governments are going to be required to interact with tribal governments. Mm -hmm. That in itself is also pretty revolutionary because it's always been uh, sort of more of a, a view that state governments don't have any sort of responsibility or, or those relationships can be really bad. And so the BEAD program has has talked about accountability and consultation measures that are going to be built in from the start that are unlike anything we've ever seen before. So we're yeah. seeing a lot of change. Okay, that's well, that's great to hear. Um, in terms of the funding programs, there's, I think, roughly $20 billion available in the tribal-specific programs. Uh, I, I think I have that right in, in the U.S. And, of course, there then um, indigenous communities can also get, like you're saying, bead funding. Um, does all of this funding feel like enough to solve the digital divide um, in indigenous communities in the U.S.? Um, like you're saying, it's it's very expensive. Uh, there's huge affordability challenges. So how are you looking at that pile of money at the, at the present moment? Yeah, it's, <clears throat> it's funny to say that $20 billion is a start, but that's <laughs> the reality with the cost of broadband infrastructure and yeah. The, the things that we're talking about, it really is just a start at this point. Um, I've seen research that has estimated it would take upwards of $100 billion to uh, connect tribal communities in the U.S. entirely. Uh, so it's definitely a, a place to start. Um, however, Indigenous communities are resilient, innovative, and have an incredible tenacity when it comes to building out their own infrastructure. So this is definitely a move in, in that direction and giving uh, communities an opportunity to uh, get started on the work that they've that they've done and know how to do um, and they've been doing well for many years. Um, it, an issue area that comes up, however, is when you put $20 billion on the table, what's the environment, what kind of environment does that create? And that's something that 
I've been seeing and sort of working on over the last few years as well is you see people uh, sort of coming out of the woodworks and like who's going to get that money and you know do you have the connections do you have the network do you have the capacity to be able to access that and so uh, one of the issue areas is that some of the most the smallest and most geographically isolated tribes who likely have the greatest need will also have the least uh, access to this funding um, and again, whether that's because of their connections or just their voice at, at a federal level, um, that's a very likely um, outcome that could happen. Uh, also ensuring that the sort of large providers who have had the opportunity to do this work and have not done it up until this point, who really you know, don't have any long-term investment um, in this work are not sort of the ones who are getting this funding because it when it comes to sustainability for the long term, uh, that's going to be something that's very important on how <clears throat> how this funding is not just a sort of money grab in the moment, but is really a tool for long term uh, sustainability in communities. So. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and speaking of funding, uh, I don't have the figure off the top of my head, but I understand that Canada um, has allocated a lot less funding than the U.S. for its indigenous uh, connectivity needs. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, they have allocated uh, a lot less and have uh, an even larger sort of divide. So um, <clears throat> from what I understand, and I'm still just learning a lot about uh, sure. the landscape, but from what I understand, um, the Universal Broadband Fund has thus far allocated about $25 million, uh, specifically to Indigenous communities this year. Uh, the CRTC Broadband Fund, I think it was just yesterday um, that uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, allocated another 400 and some million to that project. But from what I'm seeing, a lot of this funding is not geared specifically towards Indigenous communities, but is sort of for everyone. And we know how problematic uh, that can be. Um, application rounds far exceed the amounts available. Um, and the hope is that uh, this will be a, an area where Canada will really be able to look to the U.S. on how to better its practices just based on what the U.S. has done over the last couple of years. Yeah. Do you see it as just a lack of understanding or they're just behind in terms of uh, making those connections with their indigenous communities and addressing this issue? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it was funny because I was talking with the Internet Society's policy team before I started working here before the election. And we were saying, okay, like we can't really make too many plans before this uh, Biden election because we have Biden on one side who has lots of plans and investment into tribal broadband. And we have the Trump administration that has zero. And so we have to kind of wait and see what happens with this election before we can even figure out what our next steps are going to be. So I think that was a huge uh, turning point was to, okay. uh, for the U.S. to have an administration who very explicitly um, valued and invested into tribal broadband. And that's just, you know, within the last couple of years. And so I think that, you know, I don't know enough about the sort of um, the prime minister in Canada, but I do know that that 
the fact that it could be so extreme that depending on who won the election here would be the difference between billions of dollars of investment and potentially zero dollars uh, speaks to, again, the sort of historical nature of um, the federal government's investment and uh, interest in uh, investing in indigenous communities. And so there's so many other factors at play um, that, again, I don't know a lot about Canada, but I can definitely make some assumptions as to where the lack of funding may be coming from. And, and again, hopefully this is a, an opportunity for them to look at their sort of uh, neighbor neighboring countries and really honestly get some pressure put on them to, to do more and to do better. Yeah, I don't think Canada wants to feel like they're lagging behind the U.S. and some kind of social prog- progress. That's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> it's not usually how we how we feel. Um, yeah. But so just to round things out here, uh, you know, I, I'm wondering um, if you could just tell us a little bit about recommendations that the Indigenous Community, uh, sorry, Indigenous Connectivity Summit uh, came out with this year for addressing digital divide issues that go beyond infrastructure, maybe including affordability and some of the uh, digital inclusion stuff we were touching on earlier. And any any major takeaways or anything that inspired you from this summit that you want to leave us with? Yeah, so uh, I think the one of the cool things about the summit was just the sort of different direction that some of the policy recommendations went in. Uh, So things like decolonizing policy consultation processes, um, holding governments and industry accountable, really looking at sort of accountability measures. Uh, And again, going back to a really important one, uh, recognizing indigenous rights to spectrum. So I would almost see this as a movement building right now uh, in the space, which is uh, this area of focus on spectrum sovereignty. Uh, who Dara Blackwater um, is really taking the lead on on this work and has been working on this for for a while now. And basically what it's looking at is uh, spectrum is the sort of waves that travel over um, any everywhere, anywhere and everywhere. And uh, to date, uh, tribal communities in the U.S. have been uh, the spectrum that covers their land has been used, has been sold, um, and they have had no sort of rights to it up until this point. And so it was at the summit, there was an example of uh, spectrum sovereignty almost being like having a natural resource within tribal communities that that tribes don't have access to and don't have any rights to the profit that's being made from it. And Mm -hmm. this is... you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars each year uh, with the FCC. And so that was a a very important topic of conversation and how spectrum rights sort of tie back into treaty rights. Uh, Focusing on indigenous workforce um, in this process as well. I don't think I've talked to any indigenous community who who wasn't early in their sort of planning stages, who wasn't also thinking about how to include the whole community uh, in these projects and in this process of hiring um, <clears throat> Indigenous people and training for, for all areas of the work that will be done. Um, 
and also the sort of digital literacy trainings for communities and just thinking about how to sort of bring everyone along. So seeing the, the direction that some of these recommendations are going, I think speaks to the ways in which communities are really uh, given, being given the time and space to really think through these issues um, in a very holistic way and in a way that's very rooted in the values of indigenous communities, which a lot of times can come all the way back down to treaty rights for tribes in the US. Um, but also just think, just being given the opportunity to even think about this more deeply. I know that's been one of the critiques of um, US federal funding programs is that they're really sort of fast paced and high pressure. And it's like for the communities who are just getting started with this, just having the time and space to sort of um, make decisions and to understand what this even means um, is really important. So I think that was probably my biggest key takeaway from this year's summit as well was the um, seeing the, the communities and leadership there um, having the opportunity to um, look at this with the sort of magnitude that it that it actually is. It's one of the reasons that I have loved doing this work so much is it's so clear that this is a, an unprecedented time. It's a sort of once in a generation kind of um, process that we're going through. Um, <clears throat> and that the impact of the work that we're doing now will be felt and for generations and will change um, entire communities uh, forever. And so um, just really understanding the sort of weight and magnitude of, of this work and, um, and really understanding how much, how important this work is on the front end, how, how thoughtful and intentional we have to be about um, understanding what it is that we're doing and making decisions uh, in that way um, is so, so important. And that was the sort of, um, that was the feeling that I was getting at this year's summit is people all sort of being on the same page with that. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for doing this work and for taking time to talk with us about it. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great talking with you. You too. Thank you again, Sherea, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landreau, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.